how does having an asset go up in value change the world? It, it doesn't. It's not going to replace central banks. If anything, they will co-opt it. What really changes things is the transactions. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. And before I introduce the show this week, I do just want to say a massive thank you just run the numbers for last month and i had record downloads on both what bitcoin did and my other podcast defiance so just want to say a big thanks to everyone who listens all the guests everyone comes on the show everyone who helps support all this content that i'm making i love you all i really really do appreciate it anyway this week i have another interview with ragnar i'm not going to say his surname because i can't pronounce it but before we get into that i do have a message from my show sponsors so first up today, we have sportsbet.io. Have you checked them out yet? They are the best place for online gaming and they accept Bitcoin. Also, after the long sporting break, football is back on the agenda. We have the Bundesliga plan and the Premier League is going to be back soon. I'm going to be running some bets myself. So keep an eye out for that. And also, we have another Bitcoin poker tournament coming up with sportsbet.io. I will be announcing this very, very soon on Twitter and back on here. Another bunch of prizes up for grabs, including a bunch of Watford shirts with Bitcoin logos on them. So if you want to find out more about sportsbet.io, please head over to their website, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Also, I've got a gap in my schedule this week, so I do want to give a shout out to one of the companies that I've always liked in the Bitcoin space, which is Casa. So I've been talking to their CEO, Nick Newman, talking about getting my security up to speed. It's not something I've looked at for, for a while now, a good few months, and it's time for a refresh. Lop always tells me this is something you should be doing. So I'm going to be doing a refresh, and one of the things I'm going to be doing is setting up my Casa key management. I'm going to document my entire progress, and then I think I'm going to get Nick and Lop on the show to talk about this, because I think as Bitcoin is entering another interest cycle it is really important to have your security practices in place so keep an eye out for that if you want to find out more about casa head over to keys.casa which is k-e-y-s dot c-a-s-a okay so on to the show today and i got my friend ragnar back on the show somebody i didn't always agree with but i've met him a couple of times now and talked to him and actually ragnar in person is very different from twitter ragnar well as a lot of us are but I often find myself agreeing with some of his you know, more kind of radical ideas. He taught me a lot about guns and our previous show he made me appreciate the importance of, of guns. And still not something I want in the UK, but I really understood where he comes from on that. And I've also seen him recently getting into some quite interesting discussions around spending Bitcoin. And, you know, a lot of people aren't agreeing with him. But I kind of was reading through these threads and thinking, well, you make a good point. So what it is I like about Ragnar is that he doesn't just follow the Bitcoin herd. He isn't scared of speaking his mind and he doesn't feel like he has to follow consistent narratives. And this one about spending Bitcoin is really interesting because there is a very strong hodl community and and a hodl narrative but as we have things like lightning as we have btc pay server they also do require people to spend bitcoin and so this is something i did want to discuss with him and so i invited him back on the show here you've got it here's another show with ragnar where we do discuss these issues if you've got any questions about this you can reach out to me my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com also if you checked out some of the shows i've been making on defiance recently got a few interesting ones up there that are they'd like these mini documentary types i've got one about technology called the good the bad and the orwellian and i also made a show called the money game cheaters edition about corruption and government with the money and finance so both worth checking out they're available at defiance.news as I said, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, man, how are you? Good. How are you, Peter? Thanks for having me back on. No worries. Uh, it's a really great show we did last time, so it's a pleasure to have you back. You know why I've asked you back on, right? Yeah. yeah. You're out there swinging, 
swinging out there on Twitter, getting in some fights. So I want to know what's up. I want to know. There's obviously stuff that's bothering you at the moment in the world of Bitcoin. You're getting a bit pissed off about some stuff. And I want to dig right into that. And I, I want to see if I agree, disagree, what's going on. But I've got a feeling some of it I might agree with you on. So do you want to just dive straight in, go straight to the root of what is really getting to you right now? Okay, it's really two things. First, it's a lack of adversarial, critical, independent, objective thinking in for all these claims about Bitcoin. So I see Bitcoin as two worlds. It's the coders and the software and how they think critically and peer review, and it's very rigorous. And then there's the other world, which is just all these claims about Bitcoin, which doesn't seem to get any examination, any criticism. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is what I've seen is the dilution in Bitcoin of the cypherpunk goals. They're still there. They're very strong, but they have just become the minority position and people often attack them unknowingly even. So it's those two things. Right. Can we start with the cypherpunk goals then? Because in some ways that's a fair place to start because Bitcoin was a cypherpunk project. So what do you see as Bitcoin's cypherpunk goals? Well, it's the original goal of untraceable di digital cash, untraceable digital cash. That was the goal for actually kind of decades. Does that include the gold theory in there as well? Like money is gold, gold is money? Yeah, it, it basically assumes that it's just sort of money that is fungible and anonymous and digital. The goal isn't so much let's get something that goes up in value Obviously, it has to have some value, but that is sort of either a secondary thing or not the primary goal, at least, is to let's build something that is an asset class. It's like no money has to have value, but that's to get to transactional stuff, especially if it's you know anonymous and can't be um, interfered with. And look, if you look at something like the cypherpunks, you look at their history, they were a niche group of rebels and revolutionaries. Very cool looking into it as well. Actually, I've been looking into it as part of a project. But these are kind of niche people. As Bitcoin expands, a lot of people come in because of, yeah, they want to make gains, number goes up, et cetera, et cetera. Not everyone is going to come in as a cypherpunk. Some people are going to come in just to make money. Some people are going to come in uh, or, and even try and create things on Bitcoin. So, for example, I just had the... Finkelvoss twins on the show, really interesting guys. You know, they do see a lot of ills in the world, but they operate in many ways with inside the system, with inside the current framework. So I don't see them as cypherpunks, but I see them as uh, people who understand what cypherpunks are. It's just not them. But I, I see them taking Bitcoin forward. Is your problem that there aren't enough people who are cypherpunk idealists? Or is it that people who should be, you think, have kind of changed? Well, you're right in that the cypherpunks and crypto anarchists are the minority position, and they always will be. And I also understand that as more people have gone, as more people have come into Bitcoin, like you said, they're just not going to have those ideals. So it's something I don't like, but I understand it. And I, that doesn't bother me so much. The problem is that the cypherpunk ideals have now been somewhat attacked and mocked and even said that's not part of bitcoin because bitcoin has been like bankerized um bitcoin has become has suffered from bankerization by the big by the bankers and what i mean by that is bitcoin has become just like a stock 
and you're not meant to spend it. People say, don't spend your Bitcoin, only spend your dirty fiat. And they, they give you, you know, laws, economic laws says that because this money is hard money, then you're not supposed to spend it. You're supposed to save it. So they're like, don't spend your money. It's like, that's a clear attack in violation of the cypherpunk goals of untraceable digital cash. So it's fine. Like hodling is great. I hodl. It's worked out well for me. I think people should talk about that. And But that's gone too far to become hodl monomania. And that's what really I think is bothers me. And more importantly, is what's dangerous for Bitcoiners and, and is losing what Bitcoin can do. If it's just another stock, like, I don't know. I'm not here for that. Okay. I think I agree with you. I do actually think I agree with you. And I understand why people want gold 2.0. I understand why they see Bitcoin as digital gold. I do see that as well. But yeah. I don't understand the demonization of spending it. And I actually agree that it should be used. That my first use case was Silk Road. My second use case was, as I've told a million times, was to get something for my mother. It was to use it to be able to buy things that I couldn't buy in the current system. So I agree with that. I, I, think, I just think it's both. I don't ever see why we have to do either or or. I do think we can you know, let people know. We can say, look, historically, people have spent Bitcoin, have regretted it in the future. So if you are going to spend it, maybe consider topping up. Uh, you know, it might go up in the future. But I'm, I'm with you. I don't agree with this demonization of spending, that any form of spending is anti- I think I've even seen it in a presentation, like anyone encouraging you to spend your Bitcoin is a scammer. Is I think Giacomo did it. And now I'm not calling out Giacomo here. Like I'd happily have the conversation with him as well. But But I'm kind of with you on that. But it doesn't make me think Bitcoin Cash is the answer. It doesn't make me think Roger Vera is right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Is it's it's not all or nothing. It's both. We I want gold 2.0. The problem is that it's become so polarized, and there's not the both. It's become either you huddle or either you're Roger Ver who said who says spend it on you know coffee and then you want big blocks and it's it's like no like Roger Ver don't put him into what we're trying to do here people have confused that and so they've just missed the subtlety of it they've missed the intelligent overall point of it it's just people have gone into these camps without thinking about it at all and they've actually changed history and, and and the other point that you brought up which is, i also agree with is that yeah people have spent bitcoin and regretted it and so i could agree that some things you don't need to spend it on absolutely and even satoshi said this he said the traditional system works well for most things but there's points where it doesn't work well and so that has two points right so you want to spend bitcoin like you did silk road censorship resistance some form of an on anonymity and it's not really for like coffee purchases at Starbucks. I agree with that last part, but you should spend it for coffee if that person is a Bitcoiner who's going to keep it in Bitcoin, who's going to pay other people in Bitcoin. It's that Bitcoin economy. Then it makes sense for maybe things that you don't require resistance as much. And that's what the other part that people really miss. Do you think sometimes people, I don't know what the right term is here, are a little bit selective Satoshi? I'm going to go for selective Satoshi in that, I've heard people defend arguments, say, well, Satoshi thought A, B, and C. Yet if anyone refers to the white paper and talks about the fact that it, it opens up talking about Bitcoin as peer-to-peer -peer cash, which gold gold can be cash in certain scenarios. You can buy things with gold. It's, it does have its uh, flaws as, as a money. But it, it does talk about 
internet commerce. It does talk about the problems of chargebacks. It talks about problems it solves as money. It doesn't talk about it as gold 2.0, but then they write that off. And then it makes me wonder, I think, I wonder if it's because someone like Roger Vera so held on to the white paper, it makes people who perhaps if the whole Roger Vera scenario hadn't happened, they would agree, but they, they, are, they do have this fear of sounding like a bee casher. Yeah, exactly. And that's what people have attacked me for. They say, oh, you're Roger Veer, you're a big blocker. And it's like, gosh, you guys got to separate Roger Veer from everything else. Otherwise, you're letting him win. And you're right. Roger Veer took a good idea, which is peer-to-peer cash, and then went too far with it. And HODL monomaniacs are doing the same thing, taking a good idea and going too far with it. So it's hard to defend this position when you seem to be Roger Veer. And you're right, people are selective about Satoshi. Satoshi also talked about Bitcoin as gold. He talked about it as a collectible. He said you should pick some up in case it catches on. There's a reason why he had a limited supply. But why not? Why do we have to have one camp? It's both camps, but it's so hard to have that conversation today. Well, also, what is the point of developing the Lightning Network if Bitcoin isn't going to be used as money? Well, that's what's so funny about it is you have people who will say, just hodl, don't spend. And then the next thing they say was, I love Lightning Network. I love BTC Pay Server. I support them. And they just contradicted themselves. And they don't even, they're not doing it on purpose. They just have that cognitive partition that I, I don't understand. Yeah. I also sometimes wonder if it's this, this kind of a couple of sides to Bitcoin narratives that I also see. There is this kind of, cypherpunk uh, censorship seizure seizure resistant money but then there's also this kind of take down the central banks take down the government and i guess by hodling you have something that grows in value if it goes from a hundred billion to a trillion then trillion to ten trillion it does start to become a threat to central banking so i wonder if it's kind of it's lost in that people are thinking, well, if we need to hodl because we need to inv- increase the value of the network so we can take on the central banks. I wonder if that distracts people. Yeah, it distracts people. And I just think it's a very unrealistic or it's just not going to happen that way. Like you said, because if Bitcoin grows in a value such that it threatens the nation states, which it already kind of is, they're going to clamp down on it, which people underestimate how powerful the state is. So yes, it's important for Bitcoin to have some value and to increase over time. But if it goes to a million dollars tomorrow, we're shooting ourselves in the foot because the state is absolutely going to clamp down, number one. Number two, that doesn't really change the world, right? Like how does having an asset go up in value change the world? It, it doesn't. It's not going to replace central banks. If anything, they will co-opt it. What really changes things is the transactions, right? I mean, look at Silk Road. Silk Road completely went around the war on drugs, which otherwise is so difficult. It went completely around it, not because Bitcoin went up in value, but because people were transacting in it. And if you're going to take on the state, it's through those means, not having a, a stock that is digital, and, and for people to make that case, well, and they don't mean to not understand that their idea is unrealistic, like, oh, it's good to think, oh, Bitcoin's going to replace the state, central banks. They're being sincere. But if you ask them how specifically, they can't answer that. Yeah, and I've still, I've still, still never got to that point where I, I understand or believe that it's a better world. Like, I, I, I'm not a complete... And cap. I'm not anti-government. I'm anti-bad government. It just seems like every government is bad government. But 
I kind of hope for, or, and maybe I'm being an idealist, but just a smaller, better form of governance that we could get to if we if 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 we somehow could wean ourselves off big government. But I don't know how we get there. But I'm still not at the point where I believe in in no government, and that gets that can get you insulted. Like there was a period during this uh, coronavirus crisis where I said, look, I'm a bit of a status right now. I, I think some of the central planning for the government is needed. I think I've been proven wrong, largely. <laughs> not not universally. I think there's some things that, uh, especially in the UK, the government did very well that I'm not sure would have happened uh, without a government. For example, pulling in the army to build a number of hospitals at very short notice. I'm not sure if that would have happened in the free market because... I don't know if there'd have been the incentive. Maybe it would. Maybe there's a solid libertarian argument. But I'm still not completely in that kind of ANCAP world. I've never actually asked you about that yourself. Are you are you a complete anti-government or are you just anti-bad government? Where are you in that kind of world? Yeah, no, I'm definitely a crypto anarchist. How I got into Bitcoin in 2011 was through the anarcho-capitalism subreddit on on reddit and so i've i've maintained that but you, you know in a way it doesn't matter if you're an ancap or not an ancap let's just like get practical and see where we are today why don't we just focus on okay it doesn't matter what your claims are let's just see where we are today and whatever you claim about the state or not the state can we get there and where we are today is that the majority of bitcoin is well almost all of it is only acquired through regulated exchanges which the governments effectively control Number two is is a large amount of Bitcoin is held on these exchanges and then on third-party custodial services. So the government basically has its thumb on Bitcoin without having to control the network at all. How the state controls Bitcoin is indirectly. They control Bitcoin through controlling Bitcoiners and even through the tax system, right? Like at least in the U.S., they tax Bitcoin according, you know, different ways. And so if you sell Bitcoin in under a year, you get a higher tax rate than over 12 months. And so they're influencing Bitcoin that way. I've had several people say, well, Ragnar, I don't spend my Bitcoin because I have to pay higher taxes. And it's like, wow, the state is influencing how you use Bitcoin for just a simple tax rule. And so when we talk about Bitcoin being the separation of, of you know, money and state, and we talk about it, it, it's separate from the state, it's going to take down the state. It's like, what are you talking about? The state already controls Bitcoin to an extent. How are you going to overcome that? Let's, let's start with where we are today. And then how do we get away from that? And we're in such a bad situation. We're in some ways worse off than we were years ago because there's so much more money in these exchanges. And then now we have Wall Street coming in and hedge funds, and they're very compliant. They're hyper compliant. with. They're overly compliant. Look what Coinbase does. They bend over backwards. And so enough with the philosophy. You know, Let's just see where we are today. And it's not a good place. Right. So with your adversarial thinking cap on there, like you say, the government has their thumb over a, a pile of Bitcoin. The risks here are if at some point they chose to, um, they could make Bitcoin illegal. And I guess they could in some way try and seize the Bitcoin from the exchanges in a way they seize gold in the past. Is that something you worry about? I think it's an extreme position. It's, it's very possible that they could seize Bitcoin. But look at what just came out of Russia a few days ago. They passed this extraordinary law where they are prohibiting people from buying Bitcoin with cash. If you have, you have to declare what you have. They already greatly control the exchanges. So I don't think most nation states are ever going to outright ban Bitcoin. And that's an extreme position people take. Oh, they're not going to, they can't ban Bitcoin, right? They can't shut down the network. No, they can't. They can't ban every node. They can't ban every miner. That's, that's not what they're going to do. So let's just put that argument aside. 
what they are going to do is what they're doing now. KYC AML. That's very effective. Taxing things. You know, uh, some people say, well, you don't have to pay your tax. Well, most people will because that's just the world we live in. And so this idea yeah. that, that the, so that's, that's really how they control and that's all they need to do. Right. And they're doing okay. it. And so that Russia thing's interesting. It, did I read it? It's seven years, up to seven years in jail for buying Bitcoin with cash in Russia. Yeah, it's, it's something. And, and are they going to take away all cash transactions? No, but they arrest a few people. They have these high fines and they effectively dry up all liquidity and it works, it works well enough. So when people say it's going to overcome the nation state, it's just like, you know, it's, it's not. And I think Bitcoin, people have the scale completely wrong when they think about how it changes the world and the cypherpunk goals. It doesn't change it at a nation state level. It doesn't change it at a mainstream level. It changes it in a very niche, small, tiny percentage. And Silk Road is a perfect example of that, right? It went around the state for a small percentage of people. And that's, in a way, that's all that matters. For Bitcoin to have its cypherpunk goal, it's really at, at, a, at a community level of like 100 people or whatever Silk Road amount was, at 1,000, maybe 10,000 people. That's how, change, that's how it changes the world. That's the scale we need to look at. It just needs to change it for people. It just needs to, you need to be able to be 100 Bitcoin percent only. You need to be able to be Bitcoin anonymous for yourself and like 20 other people or, or more, not at this massive million adoption level. That's, that's never going to happen. There's no way. Right, I'm with you on Silk Road. It's still my favorite ever Bitcoin project. Uh, I think I also am a big fan of people were able to donate to WikiLeaks when they yeah. were blacklisted by the banks and PayPal. I thought that was super interesting. So I guess I think what you're trying to say is, is like we seem to be heading down this kind of regulated KYC route for Bitcoin. But really what we should be doing is having a focus on building this kind of I guess, because that's not going to go away, Ragnar, but I yeah, guess what we yeah. could say is that there could be this sh shadow secondary Bitcoin world where people are acquiring Bitcoin without going through an exchange, maybe person to person, who knows, but in a way that means that they are essentially, uh, let's say, the, the we're down the pseudonymous route, right? So you can still see the transactions, but there's no identity link to it. And then encouraging people to perhaps be using it for for spending for certain niche use cases. The Silk Road being a great example. But what are the examples? Because you know you take an interest in, in in I know within guns, for example, and I know printed guns is very interesting for you. So are there use cases out there for Bitcoin where it can be used as money that is making you think of this? Yeah, that's kind of I think what got it start got me started on this kind of. I don't know, not disillusionment, but really opened my eyes to where things are. It was it getting involved with the 3D gun printing community about a year ago because these guys have to use Bitcoin for a couple of things like raising money. They do these um, bounties where they're trying to get a certain goal. Like the latest one is build a nine millimeter handgun kind of from scratch with off the shelf parts. And so they have a Bitcoin bounty. If you build it, you get the Bitcoin bounty. So there's been these donation drives and bounties and it's only in Bitcoin, right? You can't go to Indiegogo and these traditional platforms and, and raise money. They won't let you on. Um, even basic stuff like you sell gun related accessories like a holster and PayPal won't allow anything like that. Like one of these top printers got kicked off of paypal and he just makes patches and stickers and stuff like that so just basic gun related things that aren't scary or illegal have to use bitcoin 
So, and those guys are, and that's what got me started is working with these guys because I'm like, wait a minute, these guys are really using Bitcoin. They have to. And then additionally, they use these other censorship resistant platforms like Keybase and encrypted, you know, uh, chat and file sharing and they're on Proton Mail. And in a right, it, it reminded me of the early days of Bitcoin. Now, all that stuff is in Bitcoin, but it's not what you see. It's not what you hear at conferences or Twitter. So that's what really opened my eyes to see that contrast between 3D gum printing and then just your mainstream dominant Bitcoin you know, conversation. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. So you're seeing the use case in those areas and industries. Well, let me let me go back a step. Silk Road got around what is government regulation for something which a lot of us don't see as something that should be illegal. You know, the, the, the consumption of drugs is uh, usually a victimless crime. It's a personal choice. If you want to smoke a joint, take some mushrooms, you know, take some ecstasy, whatever you want to do. That's in your own home. You should be able to do that, especially as we have alcohol as legal, which itself is a, a drug that causes a lot of problems for society. But but that is getting around government regulation. You're actually talking about things where which are, are legal, but people are being blacklisted because some company's making a moral judgment. And we could probably throw we could certainly throw porn into that and perhaps throw sex work into that as well. Although sex work itself depending where you are is 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 often illegal but we're talking about people who have been blacklisted despite doing something that is legal because a company is making a moral judgment yeah so not not only are they blacklisting people doing benign things like gun patches and t-shirts and then you know sex work which is like you said it's legal it's not as much of a problem but now look at cancel culture Right. You, cancel culture, you can't get on PayPal, you can't get on Stripe, you can't be on YouTube, you completely cancel. You have no way to support yourself. You can't do a fundraiser, anything. And people should really be aware, like, you could be canceled. And it could be for something as dumb as saying there's only two genders. I mean, the slightest thing can get you canceled. How are you going to make money? Like, Bitcoin is... That's what you're going to have. and But a bigger point is that we can understand the need for Bitcoin for censorship resistance. The problem is when people start mocking the use of spending your Bitcoin, when people start attacking that idea, when people start calling you Roger Veer for that in a big blocker, like how do you think we're going to be able to use censorship resistant money if no one accepts it, if no one is using it, if no one knows how to trade peer to peer, if no one knows how to set up BTC pay server? So that's what's really dangerous. It's not just, well, is it more gold? Is it more that? It's just this idea that, no, don't spend Bitcoin. It, it, it's People are shooting Bitcoin in the foot when they do that. See, I've seen from a distance these arguments happening, and I haven't looked too closely at them, but the way you're explaining it to me is perfectly rational. Look, I agree with it. I spent Bitcoin for Silk Road. Look, don't get me wrong. I look back and I wish I'd saved all that Bitcoin I spent on the Silk Road. I've, I'm probably in today's money. It's over a million dollars. But at the time, it wasn't like I was going to buy that Bitcoin and hold it anyway. I was buying the Bitcoin for a purpose. If I hadn't, I wouldn't have bought it anyway. Uh, now I understand Bitcoin. I'm more cautious about my spending. I do do it occasionally, but I am more cautious and I understand it. But what kind of what are the what are the ranges of responses you're getting? Because I'd be interested to hear. Like, is there any kind of logical, firm defenses that that you're you're seeing? Any rational ones? Well, they sound rational. So, what sounds rational is saying that the value of Bitcoin goes up over time, right? So, why spend it when you can get rich? So, that's a decent economic argument. 
but that's only one dimensional because like you've said earlier, you can just replace the Bitcoin that you spend. Now maybe there's tax implications, but like big deal. And the other thing they're missing is all the benefits you get from spending. So they take one thing and then ignore all the other benefits. Hmm. That's the rash. If you want to ask, well, what's the counter argument? How do you still man that argument? That's the strongest argument. So, and what I'm seeing is that it seems like I get 95% disagreeing with me and 5% agreeing with me. So there is this core group of people who think like I do. It's a lot of the samurai wallet guys, anyone working on encryption in general, uh, a lot of the BTC pay server and lightning guys, but they're in the minority. So, but 5% is quite low support. Yeah. Hmm, and and what's and what's yeah, and what's strange is people forget this dynamic. So you know, a lot of it is is incentives, right? So there's an incentive to hold Bitcoin to make money. But if you look at the what are the companies that make Bitcoin? It's all exchanges, services, and some mining. Those are the that's the big money. That's what probably ninety, ninety-five percent of of the companies in Bitcoin and the revenue that's generated. So they have the money to market, to have influencers, to pay for conferences, to, you know, host, you know, podcasts and stuff. And so the people behind those companies aren't bad actors in general. They're just providing a, a service that's wanted in the market. And they're just stuck with the regulations they have to comply with. So the, it's not like a conspiracy or bad actors. It's just those are the financial incentives. That's why you hear like Lolly and Swan Bitcoin and they put out all these things and get a free percentage by doing this thing. And, and people unknowingly are just repeating this because they're the dominant ones. Like people doing peer-to-peer -peer transactions, they don't have a marketing budget. So it's just, it's part of it. It's just the dynamics. Well, I guess I'm part of that because I'm, uh, I'm paid by an exchange and yeah, it's Bluffly. hard for you to find, I'm assuming it's hard for you to find, you know, a sponsor advertiser that is a nonprofit project. Like, they don't have... Well, they, they don't have any money. money. And, and yeah. if any of them approach me, I usually, if they can't afford it, I will do it discount. And I've done some stuff for free, to be honest, hell. But the way I kind of see it is that these companies aren't going away. See, I don't fundamentally disagree with them. I think there are people who want to own Bitcoin are happy to be in a regulated way. I think there yeah. are, and, and and if ultimately it grows Bitcoin, I, I, I don't, I think KYC is a regulation problem. I don't blame the exchanges. I think the exchanges would yeah. happily not have KYC if they, if they could. So, so how do you think we change this then? Because uh, you're making perfectly rational arguments. I don't disagree with you. If we're gonna have, if we're gonna support BTC Pay Server and we're going to support Lightning to keep those companies going, they're gonna need people to be spending Bitcoin. So everything you're saying, I agree with. It's completely rational. I'm not sure how, why this is an issue and how we then therefore change it. Well, first, I think it just starts with having a better understanding of Bitcoin, but really it goes back to having that critical adversarial thinking that demands evidence and rational thought. So a large part of why this is such a problem is because Bitcoin has become an asset. Bitcoin is hard money. Bitcoin is sound money. That's that's what it is. And so if that's all you understand it to be, you aren't going to see the need for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. You aren't going to see the need for spendings. And, and if you look at the claims by these people saying Bitcoin is sound money, they just don't stand up. So what they say is Bitcoin is sound money. What does that mean? Well, it's really volatile. So that blows that out of the water. It's not a um, unit of account. It's not a common unit of transaction method of, of exchange. So how is this sound money when it doesn't do any of that stuff 
Well, so, I think that's slightly you know? different because I think sound money is the properties of money in terms of divisibility, in terms of fungibility, in terms of you know ease ease of using to transfer. Like you can send a few sats around the world, which makes it better than gold. I think that's a properties. I think something like volatility. I don't think that's a property. I think that is. That is something which is a short-term flaw for it being money, but I don't think we we measure volatility in terms of us being a sound money. Perhaps it should be, but but I think volatility is more of a uh, short-term problem until we get to long-term liquidity. But then you might say, no, actually, yeah. You know, do you think do you think it's we tend to as uh, I say we? It could be anyone, but do you tend to think Bitcoin is therefore have blind spots or? They will defend. They will find a defense for any criticism. Well, well, both, right? I mean, these are these blind spots. So you could say Bitcoin is sound money because, like you said, it is divisible. It's pretty fungible. There is a fixed supply. But I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the big picture. Is Bitcoin a good money? And and when you say sound money, does that mean that you shouldn't spend it? And the answer is clearly not. Bitcoin is is not a great money. And so going back to well, criticizing it, that's a big problem. So when I criticize it, people take such offense to it and they think I'm anti-Bitcoin. They think I'm bitter, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, like I'm trying to make Bitcoin Bitcoin better. Yeah. And if you look at and if you look at the software engineers, what do they do? They attack everyone's proposal. They submit code and people review it and like this sucks. Go back to the drawing board. Right. And they reason Mm -hmm. through this. Well, what happens with your code if we do this? As they should. And so if if the these software engineers who are the smartest guys in the room if they're doing this, and if that's what makes Bitcoin so great, why can't we apply that same methodology and rigor to these ideas and philosophies about economics and sound money and everything else? That's that's the attitude we need to get and, and put in place. And I'm so, I just don't understand why we don't do that. And maybe it's because the people who aren't engineers have just a different brain. You know, they're more, I don't know, talkers or not critical thinkers or I, I don't know what it is, but it's just it's so two different worlds. Well, there are some crit- critical thinkers out there and it's a I don't know. I think I am sometimes because you work at you, you, you walk a gauntlet with it. So Nick Carter is, I think, a good critical thinker. I think Hasso is. And but one of the things I've noticed, if you're a critical thinker, you sometimes you have to throw out kind of almost like a hypothesis or a challenge. And sometimes you may even prove yourself wrong. But you run the risk of being called a fucking idiot rather yeah. than commended for being adversarial thinking. Look, I get it as well. I get it on the whole node thing because I'm always like, it's too much of a pain in the ass. Most people aren't going to do it. Now, I think I'm yeah. 100% right about that. I think people yeah. should run a node and they should look into it and should try and do it. But it doesn't change my view that it's a pain in the ass. It's just an added complication. I also, I, I think it's confusing for people when they go to Coinbase and they see more than one coin called Bitcoin. I've said it. And yeah. Not picking the language right, I'm, I still get memed about it two years on. I still get insulted about it two years on. But I still know there's going to be people that are going to go to Coinbase and they're going to see more than one coin called Bitcoin and it's going to be at a different price and they're going to consider the lower price because it's cheaper. And they're going to think, oh, that one's at $200, that one's at $9,000. Well, I need to get this one because this one might go to $9,000. And I think that's fair critical thinking. But yeah. but you do run a gauntlet and and you do and it's weird like i wonder how have we got to this point where you do run this gauntlet that if you even try and challenge it you're suddenly like insulted and you know you're like thrown thrown to the walls for it i wonder how we've got there i think it's it's two things 
first, it's psychological development, right? So in psychology, there's this theory of stages in life development. So think about a family. When you're a kid, you worship your parents, right? Like your dad is the strongest and the best, and they can do no wrong, and they give you Christmas gifts, and they you, you just idolize them. And then you become a teenager, and then you go the opposite way. You find everything wrong with your parents, you know, and then you rebel against them, and you go too far. Your parents are awful people, and they're oppressing you. They don't know what they're talking about, and they're old. And then you mature in your 20s and 30s. At some point, hopefully, you kind of put those two together and say, you know, my parents did this well, but they didn't do this well. And they tried, and they're good people, and that's just the way it is. And I think with Bitcoin, it's the same thing. So most people in Bitcoin who are in Bitcoin are still children. They idolize it. They see everything that's right with it. And if someone attacks their dad or their mom, their Bitcoin, they get so offended. It makes them so insecure. And then you see the people who grew up who became teenagers and saw the flaws. And if they didn't advance beyond that, they went to Bcash. They went to altcoins. They went to other things because they did see the flaws. And a lot of Bcashers were right about the flaws of Bitcoin and the people making a certain narrative. But they were wrong to not say, okay, now I'm an adult. I see the bad. I see the good. And I'm willing and I'm adult enough and strong enough to hear those arguments. That's so, I think it's just psychological development is, is part of it. And second, is the people who aren't software engineers aren't used to just being peer-reviewed and their ideas attacked and having to provide stuff. I think that latter point is is a really key point, actually, because developers are used to being peer-reviewed. They are used to checking, uh, having their work checked by others. And I guess, I guess it is something people aren't really conditioned to. Also, look, there are a certain number of, you know, on Twitter, because Twitter is also like this own unique place, but a certain minority of very, very loud voices. And I know it exists because I know I put out some challenging things sometimes that pisses people off and they don't agree with. And then what happens is I get DMs or emails from people saying, yeah, I, like, I agree with you, Pete. I, I agree with you. Like a node is a pain in the ass, but they won't do it publicly because they're nervous of being shouted down yeah. and insulting by this yeah. small group of people. I've got the same, I'll say things, then I get DMs from people saying the same thing. I, I agree with you, but I, you know, I don't want to say it for different reasons. And that shows you that we have a real problem when critical thinkers and adversarial thinkers and just people who are maybe trying to understand, they ask a dumb question or are new and they don't know, well, they know this and know that. It's like, well, that's a problem when, when, when we're like that. And the funny thing is, is it's, a, it's people mock Roger Veer for claiming censorship. You know, and people look at like, here's another one, Ethereum, right? People attack Ethereum. Oh, they have these silly ideas and it's so dumb and, you know, this and that. But it's like apply that critical thinking you put on Ethereum, which is mostly correct, and apply that to Bitcoin. They never will. Like put on your toxic hat that you use for altcoins, put on your toxic hat for Bitcoin, and they never will. It's like you're not very strong and toxic if you can't even put it on Bitcoin, which is supposed to be like impenetrable in a honey badger. Next up, I talk to Ragnar more about Bitcoin narratives, spending Bitcoin and libertarianism. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay, so let's talk about Kraken and why they are the best place to buy Bitcoin. Firstly, their world-class security makes them the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange in the market. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, you can get help with any issues you have, whoever you are and wherever you are. 
They also have the most comprehensive suite of tools for buying Bitcoin. You've got Kraken.com where it couldn't be easier for you to sign up and purchase Bitcoin. They have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. They've got margin trading futures and their OTC disk. Kraken has all your options covered. There is no better place to buy Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also this week, let's talk about BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services, and I've just got my latest interest. I am a customer. I do use Kraken. I do have an interest account. I do earn interest on my Bitcoin every month, and I love it. I know some people challenge this, but it's been a great service for me. I've been a customer for nearly a year, and my Bitcoin's working for me. Now, I wouldn't put all of my Bitcoin in there, and I would advise people the same, but I do have a small percentage in there, and I'm glad to earn my interest every month. But they don't just have interest accounts. With BlockFi, you can also take out a USD loan against your crypto, and they've just launched an app which enables you to use all BlockFi services, including transferring money directly from your crypto wallet into your BlockFi account. Lots of things coming up for BlockFi this year. If you're interested in finding out more, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Let me ask you, because you are a Bitcoiner, and I'm assuming you therefore spend Bitcoin, do you still, though, have that moment where you think, oh, do I really need to... like? Are you are you still both gold and money because you're having to think about your like do you think of that future where I might regret spending that? I haven't regretted one bitcoin I've spent. So I got into bitcoin 2011 okay. and I bought my first bitcoin purchase in 2012. I think it was late 2012 and it was actually from Roger Veer. Roger Veer had this the site called Memory Dealers. It's basically like computer parts yeah. and equipment and stuff. So I bought from him it was a micro SD card and I think it was a USB cable. And at the time, Bitcoin was, I don't know, probably $100 or less. And I don't even know what that would be worth today, but I do not regret it because when I bought that, it was this light bulb went on. It was so simple. The payment was just kind of like one click, no credit card information. He didn't know who I was. It was so wonderful. And it was the first time I like moved Bitcoin from my wallet to somewhere else. And I went to the Block Explorer and I saw it and it was just like, wonderful and i don't regret that and and but i also understood very early the value of bitcoin and what it can do and so this whole time i've understood both and i've done both i've hodled i've spent i've earned it i bought it like i've donated it people have given me tips so i haven't regretted anything and i and i do both and i but i to answer your question i do think about it i don't just spend recklessly but i also i think just because yeah i i, I know what i'm doing I, I spend, but I net I net gain. I I, I ensure over each year I, I'm net growing, but I, but I do also spend. So I wonder how we apply critical thinking to this side of things because the critical thinking to development is primarily, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't want to fuck up in development. If you fuck up with the code, you could lose people money. I saw a really good presentation by Luke Dasher where he's talked about this. He said, this is people's money. You get this wrong, people can lose money. You don't want a fatal, fatal flaw in the system. You don't want an inflation bug. You don't want... So that there is an, an absolute necessity for critical thinking. And it's with Bitcoin, it's unique because I, I had a web development agency once and yeah, we were test sites. But if a site went live and the next day the client phone, there was a bug, it's fine. You fix it. it. It didn't bring down the business. But a critical flaw in Bitcoin could be you know, hugely damaging. So, like, I get it there. When we talk about critical thinking and adversarial thinking here, we are still talking about subjective ideas. 
whether you want to spend it or have Bitcoin for spend or someone wants it to, to be digital gold, it's still subjective. There will still be people who just want to spend Bitcoin. And there are still people who just want to hodl Bitcoin. So I wonder how we apply that critical thinking and like in what kind of framework we apply it and what are we actually looking to achieve? Yeah, there's definitely subjectivity and just preferences, and you can't really argue with people's preferences. But I, it's funny you say that because I ran this poll months ago, and I asked, what's more powerful? It was ideas or technology, and more people voted for ideas. And so even though ideas, you can say, are subjective, there certainly are ideas and and um, claims that people put out that can be put to the test of empiricism, rational thought, and thinking through things. And that's what can be tested and be put to adversarial thinking. Very simple, very simple example is, is Bitcoin volatile? And I've, I heard, I won't say who, but actually several people who have basically said Bitcoin isn't volatile. And that's not <laughs> subjective. Like that's empirical. And they will say, well, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. We'll yeah, zoom no, out the, to 30 the years. Dollars, just, the dollar's uh, uh, volatile against Bitcoin because it's losing yeah. value. It's like, well, uh, no, because it's not a unit of account. If I go into the shop, they're not accepting Bitcoin. So well, I'm and, with you. That's yeah, bullshit. And, yeah. And, and if people, if we, if we see people ask like, why adversarial thinking? Why this? It's, it's so people don't get wrecked. So there's this other idea that Bitcoin solves for inflation. So people think, oh, great. I'm going to buy Bitcoin. So I avoid you know, the, the loss of, of inflation. Well, it doesn't. And I ran this other poll. It was really funny. I said, I said, if fiat loses 10% in one year due to inflation, and if Bitcoin loses 80% in one year due to, you know, market supply and demand, which is the greater loss? Did you lose more in fiat at 10% or Bitcoin at 80%? And it was almost 50-50. And it's like, wait a minute, no, a 10% loss in fiat isn't nearly as bad as an 80% loss in Bitcoin. So don't tell me that it solves for like inflation is so bad at 5 to 10% when Bitcoin can drop 80%. So well, again, I, I can give you a really good example to justify that. So I remember once when I bought a Trezor from the Trezor website, right? And it was priced in dollars, but I paid in Bitcoin. Then they had a supply issue. So they offered a refund. And they refunded me in Bitcoin, but I didn't get the Bitcoin amount I sent because the price had changed. I actually got less Bitcoin. And I said to them, hold up a second. I sent you yeah. X Bitcoin. You're sending me less. They said, yes, but we're priced in dollars. Our business is priced in dollars. Very, very few people who accept Bitcoin are pricing in Bitcoin and, 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 and keeping it at that like kind of static rate. They're basing it variable based on the, the exchange rate to the dollar because we're in a dollarized world. Look, if we were in a Bitcoinized world, I get it. But we're not. We're in a dollar world, and everybody looks at the the value of their Bitcoin and dollar. I I I even think that the most ardent Bitcoiner still looks at their portfolio of Bitcoin and dollar. Of course they do, and so that's and they're fucking so liars if they don't. Yeah, exactly, and that's what gets me is how are people getting away with this? And I see things like that, and they get two hundred retweets and five hundred likes, and I say that Bitcoin is volatile. I get like three. You know, and so it's it's insane. And and like you you gave a good example. Like here's an example for me. I earn Bitcoin. I have a bit. I have a business. Guns and Bitcoin. We earn Bitcoin. I try to pay for services, and it hurts. Right when I see, I used to have whatever thousand dollars in Bitcoin, and now I have seven hundred dollars. You know that hurts, and I'm operating a business. So these people who are saying this, I'm like, do you guys not earn Bitcoin? Do you not even use Bitcoin? Like, what world are you in? 
it, it, and so if we applied critical thinking, we wouldn't have this silly conversation we're having. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with you there. Um, I think, I think it'd be interesting when this goes out to see the replies. I think there will be people who agree and there will be people who disagree. I think I know which ones will disagree. I, I think I know by name who will disagree and I'd love to have the uh, equal debate with them. But there is another thing I want to talk to you about while I've got you here, just because you are an anarchist. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the lockdown and your thinking about it and what this has been like as an experience for you as an anarchist, gun-loving, tank-driving if you could, <laughs> like anarchist. Because I've seen some of your tweets. Uh, obviously, you don't support government lockdowns because you know, you're, a, you're a freedom lover. But what has it been like as an experience for you? Well, that's, that's another example of not using critical thinking. So I have a background in, in medicine and healthcare, and then, you know, I'm, I'm an anarchist, so I understand both worlds. So my view is start with the science and go with, go with the science, think critically, look at what the scientists are saying, but generally lean towards science. And that's what I've done with my medical background. Like I was in research, I took statistics, I use statistics, like I understand the epidemiology. So for me, I wear a mask, I've worn a mask, I self-isolated myself as much as possible, I wear gloves, like I'm very cautious. But then I see the libertarian argument and there's like this anti-science strain in libertarianism where anything that is a recommendation is a use of force. So they might start off with saying, yeah, you should wear a mask, you know, it makes sense. And as soon as the government says you should wear a mask or start mandating it, oh, now masks are suddenly worthless and it's fascism. And so, again, people have to understand both sides and, like, try to think critically and subtly. It's not all or nothing. And going back to, like, the whole, like, tribalism and camps and virtue signaling, people get mad over that. And they're one-dimensional thinkers. Right, okay. So I think, I think what you're saying is like that you don't agree with lockdowns. You don't agree with enforced lockdowns, shutting down businesses. Everybody should be free to do what they do. But also at the same time, people shouldn't be idiots. Like the, the, it's obvious you should be wearing a mask. You should try and social distance. You, you should be careful during this time because let's not pretend that it isn't a, a dangerous illness. Yeah. So yeah, that's you're, you're, you're separating the, the kind of the politics from the common sense. Yeah, just like the science, you know, separate the science and, and the state. And, you know, the other thing is that with, with this, so I love infectious diseases because it really brings out some flaws in libertarianism. You know, so before it's like people understand like drugs, like, oh, it doesn't harm me, so do what you want. I want to be left alone with my drugs. I want to be left alone with my choices. I want to be left alone to, you know, prostitutes, whatever, and that's fine. But infectious diseases is different because now if I do that, now it does affect you. So that's where libertarians get it wrong. Well, I did an interview with Scott Horton and he was actually very practical about this. Yeah, he talked about the fact that, look, uh, we do have a government, we do have a state in an extreme scenario, we do have to consider or understand there are certain decisions that have to be made and we, we shouldn't fight every single battle on a, on a like a libertarian front line. And I, I, again, this is where I kind of agreed with him because it's, it is a scary situation. We didn't know what was going on. And too many people were arguing from a bias. They were either very scared and wanted a lockdown, so they only ever presented data that, that suited them with regards to that, 
or they were anti-lockdown, anti-government, therefore they would look yeah. for any scrap of data which would support that, like constantly sharing what's happening in Sweden. And I think it was very difficult for anyone to know how this was really going to play out. And you know, even in some places, like let's look at Brazil. Brazil is still quite scary right now. Yeah. Well, again, if you are a critical thinker, you examine both sides and you, you say, what is the strongest argument on both sides? And then when you put those two together, you usually come out with the right decisions. But what's interesting about the libertarian view is that in a purely libertarian world, like let's say there's no state, libertarians will actually have a greater responsibility to enforce these things because you don't have a state now. Like you have a greater responsibility to wear a mask and to encourage other people to wear a mask because the state actually enforces some good things. Like you said, the state um, with regulations they actually did do some things which are good. You know, it's too bad it's by force, but they did. And if you were in this libertarian world, you would want that and you would have to influence others. But you know what? Libertarians think, oh, once we're in this libertarian world, there's no state. Well, 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 good, except, well, there's still rules. There's still things. And so instead of the state enforcing it, you're going to have to enforce it. Like a personal set of rules. Yeah, like like let's say the, the like sort of libertarian ideas that there's, say, not a state. So everyone kind of opts in to their own like regulations, like you want a place that maybe has higher taxes you collect from people, but has more services. Someone else says, I don't want any taxes. You know, another place says, I want a community that um, is only for old people or is only for families, whatever. You could basically, there's a hundred communities you could opt into and there's no state. It's just, it's sort of like a homeowners association. If you have something like that, you know, in the UK, it's, it's a community that's governed by rules and you opt into that community. When you move in there and you buy a house there, those are the rules you agreed to. And that, sort of situation, you're still going to have to figure out how do you stop the spread of disease in your community. And that could involve telling people they have to wear a mask or they're kicked out of the community. So I always feel like you, you end up with government anyway, because you end up with some kind of association, then it has to have a set of rules. What do they govern? It is just a micro version of a a government. And then you can see how that kind of expands. And I think you always end up with governance, especially when you're trying to arrange and organize millions of people, when there's certain efficiencies that will be gained by everyone by coordinating. Yeah, I mean, a family has government. I mean, if two people have government, if you get two people in a room, one has more power or, or makes more decisions than the other. So it's it's on a scale. I think when people say they're anti-statists, they just mean it at a large scale. And like you said, it's more minimalist. So they're again critical thinking. There's a scale to it and a spectrum. Well, that's why I've referenced it loads of times. But one of my favorite conversations about libertarianism was with Eric Voorhees when he said, "Let's not talk about the uh, state, no state. Let's just talk about reducing the state. Let's just say reduce the budget by five percent. Let's see how we do, and let's do the same again, and let's." It's almost like weaning yourself off the state. And I've always liked that because I think it's practical. I, f- I find like a, a lot of times I get, when I get lost with libertarianism, it's like, well, I, I understand your ideals, but but how do we ever get there? Yeah. Well, taking it back to Bitcoin for a second, we can have a, a, a reduced government in our monetary system if more people are using Bitcoin in a circular way. So imagine there's a mm-hmm. hundred of us, like your sponsors pay you in Bitcoin and then you pay expenses in Bitcoin and then all that kind of stuff then we have reduced the size of the government in the sense that we aren't participating in the states. Um, some people aren't going to pay their taxes. There's not going to be sales tax on stuff because it's just not set up for that. Well, you just reduced you know, governance or the state by using Bitcoin in transactions. So like, let's be practical. That's one way in terms of like Bitcoin. It goes back to that scale, small scale. 
All right. Listen, the last thing I want to talk to you about today before we head off and go and watch The Rocket. I got it wrong, by the way. The Rocket, I I'd had it on uh, US time. It's this evening. I can't, I'm very okay. excited about that, like a right nerd. Last thing I want to talk to you about is printed guns. What's going on in the world of printing guns? Because I haven't seen anything since... I watched a video a while back around who's what's the name of the company Cody Wilson's defense defense distributed. defense distributed yeah so what's what is going on in the world of printed guns like where are people at is it a growing industry where is it in terms of regulations what's going on in that world I can't even keep up with all the developments in 3D gun printing that's how much it's accelerated there's so many new designs so many new developers that it's absolutely amazing. And now they're they're building guns in, there's this new gun called the FGC-9, which stands for nine millimeter. And basically you're able to build a functioning gun through a combination of printing and just buying stuff in a hardware store. And now they've printed a barrel. They have a gun that's for a large caliber, 50 caliber. They have ways to make guns that anyone can. There's so many models and they're so good they're very functional. You have so many people working on them, peer-reviewed, testing them. You have this great platform, Keybase, to distribute the files. You have Library, LBRY, if you've heard of them, you should look into, to, to share the files. So it's never been stronger. At this point, it, it's almost unstoppable. I don't like to make claims like that, but it's pretty much unstoppable. They did have, they're starting to make a couple arrests. I think there's been one or two crimes committed with guns, a couple murders maybe. They arrested a guy in Canada for manufacturing them. So we're starting to see it actually used in the real world. But it's it's a whole new world. It's it's incredible. Is it is it kind of like the Bitcoin world in that it's, like what is the ethos behind printed guns? It just goes back to having your sovereignty where you say, I have a basic right to defend myself, period, right? And then that's been sort of supposed to be enshrined in the US Constitution, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. It's a basic idea, you have natural rights to defend yourself um, and the government can't stop you. So that's the basic idea. And the other idea with Bitcoin is, is, I mean, the parallel to Bitcoin is kind of distribution. It's distributed manufacturing, just like Bitcoin is decentralized, decentralized manufacturing. And when you decentralize that, it, it gives you the power to route around the state. So it's between the natural rights and using technology to to get around regulations and to improve freedom. Okay. But it's the entire process of printing a, a 3D printing a gun illegal now, or is it certain parts of it? So it, it kind of depends on the state. I mean, Generally, it is, well, federally, it is not illegal to manufacture your own firearm unless there's two restrictions. You can't make one and then sell it. You can't make it to manufacture. You can't become a gun manufacturer, only for your personal use. Mm -hmm. Number two is you can't make a gun if you're a prohibited person. So that means if normally you couldn't buy a gun at a store like you're a violent criminal and you can't buy one, then you can't make one. Those are the only two legal restrictions. Now, there's a few states who are trying to say that, well, you can't even buy like a block of aluminum because that's a precursor to a gun. But generally, you can you could pretty much make anything without those two exceptions. Do you think a violent criminal deserves the right to own a gun? I think they do. I think, you know, even violent criminals get attacked themselves. And so I think it's that's very difficult question. But I would say in general... Yes. Yes, they do. Because I guess that's what would scare people, right? Is violent criminals who can't get a gun, can't go to Walmart and buy a gun or wherever it is you, you buy guns from. Yeah, they 
they're not far off having the being able to buy the technology just to print something at home to use. I guess the other yeah. question is though, you, what about ammunition? You can't print the ammunition. Yeah, generally you can't print the ammunition, but from at least in the U.S., you know, ammo isn't really regulated and it's abundant and you can get it really easily. Although they are starting to make DIY ammo, they have really? been a couple. Yeah. Yeah, there was a guy in, I think it was Hong Kong, who made this smokeless powder. There's a couple other guys who have made bullets that you can make at home. There's still development. They have this, yeah, so they are working on completely DIY bullets. They're, there they're out there, of, they're just early. Is there any kind of like moral responsibility within the like the 3D printing gun community? You know, like we have this, I know people say there's no Bitcoin community, but I think there is. But, but within Bitcoin, it's like we should have this adversarial thinking, this critical thinking. Does it exist within the 3D printed gun community in terms of, you know, response? Is there certain responsibilities that people have a sense of duty to protect people with this, or is it just a free-for-all? Well, all the guys who are making them that I've seen are gun enthusiasts. So they, you know, they grow up with safety. Like, don't aim it at someone. Like, don't put your Mm -hmm. finger on the trigger assume it's loaded so they're all about like your basic handgun safety and if you do something like if you post a picture of your gun and you have your finger on the trigger they're going to call you an idiot because you are so there is that responsibility that they always are putting out there for safety but when it comes to like crime like what is there to do like if someone commits a crime it's not it's not my fault but i think what your question is going out well if we make this easy to make well aren't you making it easier to for criminals to commit crimes is that kind of kind of what you're saying i guess so and the, the other thing is i always think of kids but at the same yeah. time it's the duty of the parents to protect the kids and yeah well if you look at i mean look with guns the real threat is the state that's the existential threat for people is the state and so when you look at it that way, and it's backed up by history by, you know, hundreds of millions of people who have died, that's, that's the real argument for guns. And, and you see what's happening now with police brutality. I mean, it's always happened. Fuck, dude, and, it happened this week. Have you seen yeah. that video? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it doesn't surprise me, though. And so you look at these communities, especially like in the black community, whatever that means. You know, some of them have a conviction so they can't buy a gun. And then you wonder why the cops don't have any fear. Yeah, I mean that thing that this week was absolutely terrible. Uh, it, it like it shocks me that that still it keeps happening. Yeah, well, when I grew up, I always thought like the police brutality was a thing that only happened, um, you know, maybe to minorities in the inner city, but only in really corrupt cities like Chicago. I, I, so I didn't really think it was a thing. Then it happened to my brother, and then to my other brother, and then to me, and I realized, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't just a racial thing. This is a systemic police thing when they have a monopoly on violence and the court system backs the, this up. So I, I understand the racial component, but it's much bigger than that. And if people don't see beyond the racial component, we can't solve it. It's just, it's a police monopoly state problem. Is it a geography problem as well? Is it different in different states? Because I, I don't know why. I just don't imagine police brutality being as big an issue in Wyoming as it as maybe in Los Angeles. It, it it does vary a little bit, but even in a place like where I live, Orange County, which is, you know, coastal community, not the crime that other places have. I mean, a, f- a few years ago, they beat this guy to death. He was a white guy and he was just had schizophrenia, you know, and he was just out wandering around and he wasn't complying just because he didn't understand what they were saying. And they beat him 
to death. A white guy in Orange County who wasn't committing a crime. So it does vary, but the real problem is that police have a monopoly on violence and the state backs them up. So uh, I know you loved and support supported the guys. What, which was it? Where was it they went and up to the? Um, we we were taking the piss on the uh, the banter on Twitter with the guys who were talking around with the rocket launcher and the militia went up to the like the courthouse or something. Oh yeah, that's happened in a few places. So I think they did that in Michigan and a couple of states where they open were open carrying, and yeah, it's happened in a couple of states though. It's mind blowing for someone like myself to see something like that. It's so alien from here. But you, I, I've never seen a gun in the open in the UK in my life. It just, it's just something you wouldn't see, um, and it's a weird one. It, it really challenges every part of my thinking of. Because I've always said, I don't want to change to the gun laws in the UK, even though I absolutely stand by your comments of right to defend yourself. And there are stabbings in London. And I can't protect myself. I've still never got to that point where I've, I'm able to get my head around the idea of everyone being able to have access to guns. And at the same time, when I see footage of you know, a group of guys with their guns, it's essentially letting the governors know we're going to keep you in check. It blows my mind. I think it's amazing that you can actually do that, that you can actually have a militia that goes and challenges the government and says, hold on, we're not going to stand up for this. It's a, it's a, it's a re- really strange thing. Oh, yeah, of course it's strange, strange to you and to most people because it's just they didn't grow up with it. And so for them, like I've noticed that people who aren't grow, grown up with it, they think of guns as like a bomb that's going to go off. It sits there and at any minute it can go off. But when you grow up with it, like, your dad shoots, your friends shoot on the weekends, you go and shoot and it's just this inanimate object and and almost everyone you shoot with is semi-intelligent, responsible and they're safe and there's never been any accident and you can do it for 30 years and it's just like, what is the problem here? It's like playing soccer, like what's the issue? This is fun and it's safe and we all do it and it's normal. Like, But if, you, if you're not used to that, if it's not normal and you, it does seem crazy. So I understand it. And so that's why like one of my strategies to try to take people shooting. I think you've said you've gone shooting a few times and then it kind of changed. I think you saw it a little differently after that, I think you said. Yeah, I've been once. I went with Jameson Lopp uh, nearly three years ago was when I made my third show with him. He took me shooting and it fundamentally changed my views on guns. Firstly, I think I told you this last time, I was blown away by how powerful they are. The, the, the pulling of the trigger and the power from the gun but the sense, even though you don't see it, the sense of the bullet going straight to the other, the end of the range, is something that no film ever gets across. You never yeah. get the perception of how powerful it is. So that blew my mind. And the other thing that blew my mind is that going to the gun range for me was very, very similar to going bowling. It, it was lanes. It was couples. It was you know groups of friends. It was people on their own. Yeah, yeah no kids, right? But. But it was essentially like going bowling, and it was an afternoon activity that I think you could you could easily just say, "Do you want to go bowling or do you want to go shooting?" Yeah. And that I thought was very cool. I don't know if I lived in the states, I don't know if I'd have a gun. It's a really weird thing. I could see eventually maybe I would, but I think I need to live around it a bit more. Um, and, and it depends where where I live. Um, I, again, if I lived in somewhere like Wyoming, I could see me having a gun more likely there than somewhere like L.A. Whereas in, in terms of defending myself, I probably need it more somewhere like LA than mm-hmm. Wyoming. It's a very mm-hmm. strange thing, but but you owe, you owe me a trip shooting. When we can get back on the planes again, I can get back out to California. You owe me a yeah. trip. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we got close once or twice when you were here, but yeah, if you're out here, let's let's go to the range because and while you were shooting, you probably realized, wait, like I have to pull the trigger for this thing, even though it's like, wow, this is so powerful. It's it's scary and you should be afraid of it in a way and respect it, but you realize, well, this is just an intimate object. Like yeah, and imagine it, Jameson, imagine Jameson going to one of these rallies at the Capitol. And I mean, are you, would you be afraid of him walking around with his gun protesting? Probably not, because he's a pretty level-headed guy. Well, that's the thing. So I see all the footage of the people with the rocket launchers and the guns. I don't imagine them using it. I don't imagine I would feel particularly unsafe. Again, I would probably feel more unsafe walking down Venice Beach at 9 o'clock at night or walking down Speedway parallel with Venice Beach at 9 at night just with a bunch of people hanging out on the street corner than I would walking down there seeing a bunch of guns opened. Because I know it's, it's almost like the open carry, it's almost like a signal of being responsible about mm-hmm. guns. It's a very, but yeah, it does challenge a lot of my thinking, but you do owe me a trip. When when we can yeah. get back on planes, yeah. when I can get back out to California, we're going to go out. So yeah. anyway, listen, before we close out, tell me how guns and Bitcoin's going. Oh, we had our best two months um, actually, that's why we kind of had to pause the um, podcast because we've just been overwhelmed with with work. Obviously, we, we've made these face masks and they were, I mean, it was, yeah, it was our best couple of months. So there's that. And then we saw a lot of people buying our Scorpion cases, which holds a gun and Bitcoin wallet or just electronics. So we actually record sold, we're just about sold out of those. Wow. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's never been better. I love earning Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, look. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on. I agree with you. I do. I, I can't argue with you. And if it means I get some shit as well, I, I'll, I'll take it on the chin. Um, I, I hodl Bitcoin, but I'm not afraid to spend it. And I think we should support use cases. And if not, it doesn't make sense that we support BTC Pay Server and, and Lightning Network. It's, this is, that's a weird kind of like contradiction that's going on. So, look, I completely support you, Ragnar, and I'm, I'm glad, you're, glad you're here. And hopefully we'll see each other again soon and get, get to go and shoot. Uh, b- before we close out, tell people where they can follow you and find out more about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, just gunsandbitcoin.com. And then I'm on Twitter at Ragnarly. But I do want to say thanks for having me on and just thanks in general for being someone who is open-minded and has all sorts of crazy guests like me because that's how we expand the conversation. And thanks for putting yourself out there and making some claims that I think are smart and some less informed because either way, you're, I mean, you are thinking. Right, you are thinking. Whether people agree, you are actually thinking. And I've disagreed with you on stuff, but I could see that you are thinking, even if yeah. I don't agree with it. So thanks for doing that. And I wish we had more people. Even if you get, you know, people don't like it, keep doing it. No, you could. What is it? Someone said a man who can't change his mind can't change anything. Look, I completely had a uh, one eighty with regards to guns. Uh, it started with after a, another mass shooting in the U.S. and. It started with me putting out tweets saying, "How do you not see the rest? Of what the rest of the world is seeing? This is madness." Blah blah blah. And you know, I I came out. I've spoken to you. I've spoken to other people. I've learned more. I went out to Wyoming, spent some time with Tyler Lindholm. You know, I understand more about it now, and and my view has changed. I, I'm I still don't think a guy needs to walk down the street with a with a rocket launcher or drive a tank, but you know baby steps right but uh but i have a fundamental different view i'm not scared of guns anymore in in the way i used to be uh, i don't think the problem is guns i think the problem is mental health and uh, some of the constructs that we have in society 
I still don't want guns opening in the UK just yet, though. So uh, yeah, I, I'm in a weird position, but I've definitely I've definitely changed, and that's just be, by being open minded. And I think we should all do a bit more. So yeah, I appreciate you recognizing that. So uh, yeah, well, th- listen, thanks for coming on. Stay safe, stay healthy, and like I say, as soon as those planes are running again, I'll be back out to California, and we will we'll fit a trip in, and we'll go and shoot some guns. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on, and I'll see you at the gun range. All right, my man. Take care. All right, so what did you make of that one? Did you enjoy that show with Ragnar? I always like talking to him. I always like having him back on the show. I don't always agree with everything he says, but I do kind of agree with this spending thing. I don't understand this demonization of spending. Yes, people should understand if you spend Bitcoin, you might regret it later on because it might go up in value. But that is not a reason to not spend Bitcoin at all. And I don't agree that if you encourage people to consider use cases for Bitcoin, which involve spending, that you are suddenly a big blocker or a B-casher. Now, yes, we probably don't want everyone buying cups of coffee with it. I get that. But early use cases for Bitcoin was getting around government oppression, government rules. So I'm kind of with him on this. I think hodling is important and I think spending is important. And I think understanding the consequences of both is important. Now, if you do have any questions about this, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you want to support the show, there's loads of stuff up on my website. Really, just a review on iTunes would be amazing. If you've got five minutes, if you enjoy the show, just head over to iTunes and give us a review. If you think I deserve five star, great. Look, if you think I deserve one star, fair enough. I do read all the reviews. So if there are one star reviews, I want to know why people don't like the show as well. But yeah, if you want to support the show, you can do that. Also, if you want to support my other work, please do head over to defiance.news. I've got other podcasts I'm creating slightly outside of the Bitcoin world, but probably aligned with some of the thinking of people who are in the world of Bitcoin. Anyway, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 